Everybody loves a good mystery, right? Today we're talking about a doozy. What does the Bible say about the possibility of alien life? So this is a big controversial topic. Does the Bible address the possibility of there being aliens? Welcome into the Bible Mystery Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Thompson. This is episode number four. The episode you're going to hear in just a minute was actually originally recorded in June. As if you listen to the trailer of the Bible Mystery Podcast, you'll hear that I rebooted the Bible Questions Podcast. I know it's a little confusing. In July of 2019. So the content you're about to hear is just a few weeks old. Uh, Every now and then in the show, I might mention the Bible Questions podcast, but every time you hear that, just remember, it's now the Bible Mystery Podcast. This episode is long, but I think it's a worthwhile discussion. I put the episode out in June, as I said, and when I did, got a lot of feedback. And honestly, despite the fact that the Bible does not go deeply into detail about the possibility of alien life, there are some Christians who are absolutely positively dogmatic that it's impossible for there to be alien life. And when you ask them what you base that on, is that the Bible or whatever? They say, well, God would have told us in the Bible if such a thing was true. And I think, number one, that's an argument from silence. Number two, it assumes that God is going to tell his people everything in the Bible. And you know what? He doesn't. He doesn't tell us when his son is coming back, for instance. He doesn't tell us a lot of things. I mean, God knows a lot of things, and it is not incumbent upon him to explain himself fully to his creation in the Bible. At least that's my take. I'd love to hear your take. And before we get started with the show, I do want to invite you to check out the website, BibleMysteryPod.com. BibleMysteryPod.com. You can subscribe to the show there. That would be great. Also, you'll find extensive show notes along with just about everything I said uh, in this podcast. It's almost a transcript, and it's long. But all the C.S. Lewis and Charles Spurgeon and early church father quotes uh, I discuss in the show, with, uh, you will be able to find in print form at BibleMysteryPod.com under the show notes for episode four. And I do want to point you, I think I mentioned it somewhere in the podcast, but I do want to point you to my book, Monsters in the Bible. It's available on Amazon. I'm going to add this chapter on aliens very soon. But if you like this kind of stuff, you might be interested in that book. And if you got a Kindle, it's only 99 cents. And honestly, at this point, that's about how much it's worth. Just uh, slightly under a buck. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for subscribing. Here we go. So today, the subject is aliens, and I know that's kind of weird for some of you, but this is going to be a serious discussion and a deep discussion. So we're going to open with a thought from my writing hero, C.S. Lewis, and my pastoral hero, Charles Spurgeon. C.S. Lewis first. This is from his essay, The Seeing Eye, which was in a book called Christian Reflections. He wrote this in 1963, which, if you're keeping track, was six years before the moon landing. This is him discussing space travel. 
C.S. Lewis writes, A more practical issue will arise when, if ever, we discover rational creatures on other planets. I think myself this is a very remote contingency. The balance of probability is against life on any other planet of the solar system. We shall hardly find it nearer than the stars. And even if we reach the moon, we shall be no nearer to stellar travel than the first man who paddled across a river was to crossing the Pacific. This thought is welcome to me because, to be frank, says Lewis, I have no pleasure in looking forward to a meeting between humanity and any alien rational species. I observe how the white man has hitherto treated the black man, and how even among civilized men the stronger have treated the weaker. If we encounter in the depth of space a race, however innocent and amiable, which is technologically weaker than ourselves, I do not doubt that the same revolting story will be repeated. We will enslave, deceive, exploit, or exterminate. At the very least, we will corrupt that race with our vices and infect it with our diseases. We are not fit yet to visit other worlds. We have filled our own world with massacre, torture, syphilis, famine, dust bowls, and with all that is hideous to the ear or eye. Must we go on to infect new realms? It was in part these reflections that first moved me to make my own small contributions to science fiction. In those days, writers in that genre almost automatically represented the inhabitants of other worlds as monsters and the terrestrial invaders as the good guys. Since then, the opposite setup has become fairly common. If I could believe that I had in any degree contributed to this change, I should be a proud man, says Lewis. The same problem, by the way, is beginning to threaten us as regards to the dolphins. I don't think it has yet been proved that they are rational, but if they are, we have no more right to enslave them than to enslave our fellow men. And some of us will continue to say this, but we will be mocked by others. So there's some pretty deep insights from C.S. Lewis. Uh, one, uh, he was very advanced in his thinking about animal rights. For two, writing in the 60s, he was very advanced in his thinking about race issues. And basically what Lewis is saying is this. If there are aliens out there, and he certainly leaves open the possibility that there are, though he doubts, rightly it seems, that there would be any in our solar system. If there are aliens out there, we would probably mess them up by encountering them. We might enslave them or or, or do some of the mistakes of the, the white men have done in the past in uh, all of the relations with other races. So Lewis is not happy about that. This is what Spurgeon says. And keep in mind, Spurgeon is writing in the late 1800s. He says this, This science, talking about astronomy, ought to be the special delight of ministers of the gospel, for surely it brings us into closer connection with God than almost any other science does. It's been said that an undevout astronomer is mad. I should say that an undevout man of any sort is mad with the worst form of madness, but certainly he who has become acquainted with the stars in the heavens and yet who has not found out the great Father of lights, the Lord who made them all, must be stricken, says Spurgeon, with a dire madness. Kepler, the great mathematical astronomer, 
who has so well explained many of the laws which govern the universe, closes one of his books, his harmonics, with this reverent and devout expression of his feelings. I give thee thanks, Lord and Creator, that thou hast given me joy through thy creation, for I have been ravished with the work of thy hands. I have revealed unto mankind the glory of thy works, as far as my limited spirit can conceive their infinitude. Should I have brought forward anything that is unworthy of thee, or should I have sought my own fame, be graciously pleased to forgive me. That was Johann Kepler, one of the fathers of astronomy, and also a man of deep faith in the Lord. Spurgeon continues, And you know how the mighty Newton, Isaac Newton, a very prince among the sons of men, was continually driven to his knees as he looked upwards to the skies and discovered fresh wonders in the starry heavens. Therefore, the science which tends to bring men to bow in humility before the Lord should always be a favorite study with us whose business it is to inculcate reverence for God in all who come under our influence. Now that was Spurgeon teaching seminary students about the connection between science and theology. Oftentimes people set up a false dichotomy, an almost oppositional relationship between science and theology, but you need to know that was not always so. There have been many times in history where scientists were devout followers of God and there was no enmity between the two things. So, today's question. At the very beginning of the podcast, first episode a few weeks ago, I promised you that we would sometimes delve into wild, wacky, and uh, maybe interesting, hopefully, areas of the Bible. And today's the day we begin that journey. Most of the time, I plan on playing it straight. But the fact of the matter is, there are many interesting, mysterious, and eh, downright strange parts of the Bible. And I don't think we should ignore them or explain them away with a hand wave and an easily palatable explanation. Hey, let's embrace the weird. And by the way, if this topic is interesting to you, then I would invite you to check out one of my books. It's called Monsters in the Bible. Now, it's a short book. It's 99 cents on Amazon, and it's worth that for Kindle. It's like five bucks if you want the print copy. I don't know if it's worth that, but that's the absolute lowest price Amazon would let me sell it. I'm planning on adding more to that book and putting out a second edition before uh, October of this year. But for now, it's an interesting examination of weird creatures spoken of in the Bible. It's called Monsters in the Bible. Vanderbilt astronomer David Weintraub says this, 55% of atheists believe in alien life, but only 32% of Christians. That's less than a third. Less than a third of Christians believe in the possibility of extraterrestrial life. Weintraub goes on and says, Most evangelical and fundamentalist Christian leaders argue quite forcefully that the Bible makes clear that extraterrestrial life does not exist. From this perspective, that their perspective, the only living, God-worshipping beings in the entire universe are humans created by God who live on earth. And my question is, does the Bible really, really make that clear? That is to say, are slightly over two-thirds of Bible-believing Christians correct 
in that there could be no possibility of rational alien life. Well, Calvary Chapel Church in Roswell, New Mexico, halfway agrees with most evangelicals. Now, I chose Calvary Chapel Church in Roswell because, as some of you might know if you're a UFO enthusiast, Roswell is the site of, uh, actually it's not quite the site, it's roughly 80 miles away, but it's the biggest major city to Mac Brazel's ranch. And if you don't know Mac Brazel, supposedly Mac Brazel in 1947 found some very interesting debris scattered around his ranch that was reported to be, in the next day's paper, UFO debris, flying saucer debris. Later on, the military uh, corrected that story uh, or obfuscated that story, depending on your perspective, to say that uh, it was not UFO debris at all. But the point being, Calvary Chapel Church in Roswell says this about the possibility of alien life. Biblically, if there are aliens, there's no way we would have contact with them or God would have told us about it in the Bible. And he did not. The Bible never speaks of aliens from another planet. Further, there's no way they would crash and die here on planet Earth. Death entered our world through Adam and affected everything on this planet. If there are aliens, they would not be exposed to this curse. That's interesting. There's lots of suppositions there that I don't necessarily think are backed up by Scripture. Consider this sentence. She smiled at me, therefore she likes me. Well, the truth of the matter is maybe, maybe not. It's a supposition, but is it, is it supported by fact? Let's take the first sentence in the Calvary Chapel Church of Roswell, New Mexico's Statement of Belief on Aliens and see how it logically holds up. Their sentence is, If there are aliens, there's no way we would have contact with them or God would have told us about it in the Bible, and he did not. So, is that sentence rational? Does it hold up? Is it logical? How about this? If men were to travel to the moon... God would have told us about it in the Bible, and he did not. If the United States of America would be the dominant superpower of the world in the 21st century, God would have told us about it in the Bible, and he did not. If atoms were the building blocks of all matter, God would have told us about it in the Bible, and he did not. Now, all three of those statements are true, and all three of these statements were not revealed to us in the Bible. Such statements as the one that Calvary Chapel of Roswell made Suppose that God is obligated to tell us about everything in the Bible. But the thing is, he is under no such obligation. So we can't assume things that we are left in the dark about. Now that said, all, all the love in the world to Calvary Chapel. I'm a fan of Calvary Chapel, like their theology. Calvary Chapel, Roswell, you guys are the best. I love you. And I'm also a fan of podcasts, a uh, podcast connoisseur, you might say. I'm subscribed, literally, to over 100 podcasts of all shapes and sizes and themes, etc. Many of those podcasts are Christian podcasts, but many are not. In case you're curious, I'm going to give you my top 10 list. I'd love to hear the, yours, too. You can tweet them to me on the show at BibleQPodcast. That's at BibleQPodcast. So here are my top 10 podcasts in no particular order. One, Ask Pastor John, John Piper. He gives excellent biblical counsel. 
to the Omnibus with Ken Jennings, the former Jeopardy champion, and John Roderick. That show is hilarious and informative. Not at all Christian, but a great show. Ryan Rossillo podcast. I have that at number three, but these aren't really in order. I'm just listing them. He's on ESPN Sports. He's far and away my favorite sports commentator. Another one, number four, Stuff You Should Know with Josh and Chuck. I've been listening to that podcast every bit of 12 years, maybe longer than that. Number five, Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. More on that one in a minute. Number uh, number six, Rainer on Leadership with Tom Rainer. Number seven, The Bible Project with Tom, Tim Mackey and John Collins. Number eight, Fantasy Focus Football with Field Yates and Matthew Barry, who had a cameo on Avengers Endgame, by the way. Number nine, True Crime Garage. Warning, there's a bit of swearing in that one. And number ten, pretty much any podcast that Payne Lindsay puts out. Up and Vanished is good. Monster is good. It's a really good true crime podcast. But you're going to get some swearing from the uh, people interviewed on that show a pretty good bit. So anyway, I was listening to one of those podcasts above, the Astonishing Legends podcast, a few weeks ago. They were talking about a fairly fascinating object called the Bet Spear that a family in Florida found in the woods near their house in the 70s. Very interesting show, very dis- interesting discussion about the Bet Sphere. I'd heard of it, but it was uh, a much more fascinating object than I had realized. So the Bet Sphere, B-E-T-Z, the Bet Sphere demonstrated all sorts of unusual properties, according to the Betts family. And it drew the interest of some news organizations and government people, including the former head of something called Project Blue Book. This guy's name was Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Now, if you don't have your tin foil hat on right now, you're probably asking the question, what in the world is Project Blue Book? Well, Project Blue Book was one of a series of several studies of unidentified flying objects that was conducted by the Air Force. This particular one is the third major one I'm aware of, and it started in the early 50s. Uh, It was preceded by Project Sign from 1947, Project Grudge from 1949. And uh, Project Blue Book basically analyzed all sorts of thousands of of UFO reports from the early 50s to the late 60s. J. Allen Hynek uh, was the science advisor on Project Grudge, on Project Sign, and Project Blue Book. He was an astronomer, a professor, and a ufologist. Highly educated man who died in 1986. If you've ever heard of the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, it was J. Allen Hynek who developed the classification system that is used among ufologists for contact with aliens. A third, uh, a, a, a third kind of an encounter is one where you actually have interaction with an alien being. I've never had that. But anyway, during his time researching the Betts Spear, Dr. J. Allen Hynek became good friends with the Betts family. 
getting to know them pretty well over the course of several visits. Now, most of the information I'm getting here is from the Astonishing Legends podcast. And on that podcast, they interviewed a Betts family member. So this is firsthand testimony. Believe it or not, you know, I'm not going to convince you, but what I'm about to tell you comes straight from one of the family members. According to her, Dr. Hynek told the family that the U.S. government was aware of several alien encounters and visitations, including Roswell, and they had covered up most of them so the general public wouldn't lose their minds and freak out. And so why in the world would the public freak out? I guess, well, I mean, we've seen, we've all seen our host of science fiction shows where the aliens come and zap everybody and take over and all that kind of good stuff. I still remember as a kid watching V, the miniseries, which was fantastic, but informed my nightmares for years afterwards about some sort of alien invasion. Well, Dr. Hynek said that, at least in part, the public would freak out about the possibility of aliens because major religions, including Christianity, would have a large negative reaction to the existence of aliens because that would seemingly contradict the teachings of the church and the teachings of the Bible. J. Allen Hynek believed that society might fall apart if people knew that aliens actually existed, and the government was worried that that knowledge would interfere with the practice of religion. Now, let me pause for a second. As much as I am actually interested in this sort of thing, today's episode is not fundamentally about whether aliens exist and whether or not they've made contact with us or not. I do actually know the answer myself, but I can't tell you about it because it's classified and I've been sworn to secrecy. Well, maybe I'm kidding. In truth, actually, I have no idea. But because I can't help myself, I will say one brief thing about the possibility of aliens. At the end of April, I read a very interesting article in the Washington Post, which is one of the major United States newspapers, probably right below the New York Times in terms of integrity. And this was an article that really caught my attention because the headline was pretty fascinating. The headline was about how the Navy was tired of of having frustrated naval pilots not have a way to report UFO encounters, so they had developed a better way of reporting UFO encounters. So I read about it, and I'm going to read you a little section of the article. From the Washington Post at the end of April. Recently, unidentified aircraft have entered military-designated airspace as often as multiple times per month. Joseph Gratisher, the spokesman for the Office of the Deputy Chief of Naval Operations for Information Warfare, told the Washington Post on Wednesday. Pause. <laughs> That's a pretty big deal. A high-ranking naval intelligence officer is telling the Washington Post that there are a lot of unidentified aircraft buzzing around military airspace in the United States. Now, that doesn't mean there's alien life, but when I read that, I kind of stood up and said, whoa, this is not the National Enquirer. This is not Star. This is Waypo. This is the Washington Post. All right, I'm going to keep reading. He said, we want to get to the bottom of this. We need to determine who's doing it, 
where it's coming from and what their intent is. We need to try to figure out ways to prevent it from happening again. <laughs> again, it's a little it's a little alarming, a little scary that one of the big higher ups at the Pentagon in U the United States Navy is like, hey, we're a little bothered by this. We gotta figure out what's going on. Louis Elizondo, a former senior intelligence officer, told the Washington Post that the new Navy guidelines formalized the reporting process, facilitating data-driven analysis while removing the stigma from talking about UFOs. Elizondo called this the single greatest decision the Navy has made in decades. Now, if you're not familiar with the name Luis Elizondo, well, I don't blame you, but he was the former head of the AATIP. Now, if you paid attention to the news, this was the organization that was a multi-million dollar funded Pentagon organization that investigated UFOs for the last few years. In 2012, the AATIP was defunded on the governmental books, but it still exists and it's somehow, I don't know, funded in other ways that don't show up on the books. Anyway, Elizondo says this, the newly drafted guidelines were a culmination of many things, most notably that the Navy had enough credible evidence, including eyewitness accounts and corroborating radar information, to, quote, know this is occurring. Another quote from Elizondo, if I came to you and said, there are things that can fly over our country with impunity, defying the laws of physics, and within moments could deploy a nuclear device at will, that would be a matter of national security. With the number of U.S. military personnel, says the Washington Post, in the Air Force and Navy who described the same observations, the noise level could not be ignored. This type of activity is very alarming, Elizondo said, and people are recognizing there are things in our aerospace that lie beyond our understanding. Now, okay, I don't know what to think about UFOs, but when I read articles like this, I'm thinking, man, this is a big deal. This is not just something you might see on Unsolved Mysteries where some I don't know, redneck couple, and no offense, I'm from Alabama, I can say that. Some redneck couple talks about seeing shining lights above them and, and how they were kidnapped or whatever. This is senior naval officials in one of the top two newspapers of record in the United States. Now, before you get too excited that this new initiative might finally clue us in to what the government knows, I will tell you the very next week, the Washington Post ran another article on the UFO thing, and they quoted Mr. Gratisher again, and he said that the Navy was not going to release any information to the public. This is what he said. Any report generated as a result of these investigations will, by necessity, include classified information on military operations. Therefore, no release of information to the general public is expected. Well, thanks a lot, pal. I guess it's not a huge deal. So, I guess you and I should expect to be in the dark for a few more years at least. But, today's question is not whether or not the U.S. government will finally disclose alien interactions, but whether or not the Bible rules out the existence of aliens at all. Is Dr. Hynek correct? If the government suddenly 
came on the news today and announced alien contact of some kind. If a flying saucer all of a sudden appeared above Washington, D.C. and landed on the front steps of the White House, would that somehow invalidate the Bible? Would it mean that Christianity was fake or something like that? And the answer is, I don't think so. Not at all. But I could be wrong, and many theologians disagree with me. So let's start out looking at the anti-alien case. Got Questions is one of my favorite websites, gotquestions.org. It's uh, basically an online uh, internet version, uh, website version, text version of this show with thousands of questions asked and answered. Most of the time, I really agree with whoever it is that answers the questions there. Solid biblical theology. They were asked the question, do aliens exist? And I'm going to read you their answer. We do not believe that aliens exist. The Bible gives us no reason to believe that there is life elsewhere in the universe. In fact, the Bible gives us several key reasons why there cannot be. Those who contemplate the existence of aliens and the impact their existence would have on the Christian faith commonly discuss the identity and work of Jesus. God sent his only begotten son, God incarnate, to save mankind and redeem creation. Does that redemption include life on other planets? Or would God have manifested himself on those other planets as well, in the manner of Aslan and Narnia? Does only begotten mean the only physical representation? Or is it more limited, referring only to the human species? Another topic of discussion concerning the existence of aliens in Christianity is what it means to be made in the image of God. Since God has no physical body, we take this to mean a reflection of God's non-physical aspects, rationality, morality, and sociability. Would aliens, if they exist, embody the same characteristics? Says God questions. I say, why not? But anyway, continuing to read their, their response, considering what we know about space and life and the world as the Bible portrays it, we already have an explanation for so-called alien activity on Earth. Reports of close encounters describe the ethereal, transient, deceptive, and malevolent. Accounts also record that encounters with supposed aliens can be stopped by a real, authentic call to Jesus. Everything points to the activity of demons, not extraterrestrials. In fact, it's plausible that the powerful delusion spoken by Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.11 will involve an alien abduction theory to explain away the rapture. That is the conclusion of God questions. That aliens are not possible biblically, and any encounter people have had with aliens can be explained by demons. Now, I don't know about that. And I don't think they made their case biblically at all. I actually don't think most UFO reports, many of whom are reported by seasoned Navy and Air Force pilots, for instance, I don't think any of those have really anything in common with demonic encounters that you see in Scripture. Got Questions continues. The discovery, in quotes, of alien life would have no effect on genuine Christianity. Well, I completely agree with that. They continue. The Bible stands as written. 
No matter what secular theories are advanced or discoveries are claimed, the Bible says the earth and mankind are unique in God's creation. God created the earth even before he created the sun, moon, or stars. And they reference Genesis 1 on that. Now, that's that's the end of what they said. Again, I love got questions. I really think they missed it on this one. I'll circle back to that in a minute, but let's look real briefly at Genesis 1 first. Does the Bible really say the earth was created before the sun, moon, or stars? Well, maybe. I guess it depends on how you interpret it. But listen to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Evening came, and then morning, the first day. Now, the way I read Genesis 1, it sounds like God created the heavens first. Now, does Genesis 1 verse 2 seem to indicate that the earth was created before the sun? I, it, you could certainly read it that way. But the Bible does not say that the earth and mankind are unique in God's creation. I can't find such a sentence anywhere. Now, very similar to the Got Questions guys, we get to Matt Slick of CARM. And I like Matt Slick. I think he's a very biblical teacher. Uh, I appreciate what what he says about most topics. I just happen to disagree with him a little bit about this, but this is what he says. The Bible does not mention extraterrestrial or alien life. However, it does mention angels and demonic forces, which are, in a sense, not of this world. This is not the kind of alien extraterrestrial life that most people are talking about when the subject comes up. Nevertheless, the Bible makes no mention whatsoever of aliens from other planets who might be visiting us. Completely agree with that. But Slick goes on from there to argue against alien life being highly unlikely because he believed that the Bible declares all creation on all worlds fallen by what Adam did. And therefore, alien life couldn't be likely because Jesus would have to die for them as well. Hmm. That is a very common argument among people who disagree with the possibility of alien life. They say, well, if there is alien life, then Jesus would have had to die for them. And, you know, in various ways, that doesn't make sense. Michael Hoodman makes a very similar argument to that when he says, Above all, let me say, I do not believe aliens exist. Let's also differentiate between sentient aliens and non-sentient aliens. While I would not necessarily have a theological problem with the concept of non-sentient beings existing on other planets, I do have a huge theological problem with the concept of other sentient beings existing elsewhere. It just does not mesh with the teachings of the Bible. The Bible presents humanity as uniquely created in the image of God. Angels are not created in the image of God. Animals are not created in the image of God. According to the Bible, we are unique, specifically created to have a personal relationship and connection with God the Creator. Intelligent, sentient life in other parts of the universe destroys or at least weakens this uniqueness. And it raises all kinds of questions. 
When did God create the aliens? Do the sentient aliens have an internal soul? Did they fall into sin? Did God reveal himself to them? Does their understanding of God match what the Bible says? Did God provide them with an alien Bible? Did God provide for and offer them redemption and salvation? If so, how? Did Jesus die for them too? No, those are great questions. They're not unanswerable. But the one area I disagree with Slick on is his interpretation of humans created in the image of God. Yes, absolutely, the Bible is clear. Genesis 1.26, humans are made in the image of God. But the Bible never says that or never rules out the possibility of God creating other beings in his image as well. For instance, John 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. Now, notice how it doesn't say, Let us make man and man alone in all the universe in our image. Hoodman goes on to say, All joking aside, if God intended for humankind to meet alien life, he would have outlined those encounters in the Bible, along with an answer to what he has done for them regarding sin. Now, I just don't really fully agree with that speculation. I like Hoodman. I like Got Questions. I like Matt uh, Slick of Karm. I like most of the other evangelists that disagree with the possibility of alien life. But I find their reasons for denying that possibility not biblical, merely speculation. And they, they, the questions they're asking are good questions, but they don't invalidate the possibility of alien life. I basically feel like these sort of negative reactions are knee-jerk responses to the question. I sort of feel like these kind of speculations are very similar to uh, the early church father Lactantius, um, who lived in the 200s to the 300s. He scoffed at the possibility that the earth was round. He couldn't cite a scripture to prove that the earth was flat, as he thought, but he assumed that scripture taught such a thing. Now, I'm not comparing these other guys with flat earthers. Don't get that. But, for, for instance, Augustine, or Augustine, if you prefer that, he poo-pooed the possibility of the existence of people on the other side of the world. Uh, antipodes, as they called them in the early centuries. He said there's no way that could ha happen. He thought scripture backed him up on that, but the fact of the matter is it doesn't. There are people existing all around the globe of the earth, and the Bible doesn't deny that, but Augustine thought it did. Give me clear scripture that shows life on earth is unique, and I will believe it against all charges. But I don't think such a scripture exists. Now, I posed this question to the TBR, the Baptist Review group on Facebook, which I'm a member of and uh, contains a lot of pastors, Baptists, writers, church people, etc. It's a fun group. It's an interesting group. And I got a lot of interesting responses from people. Uh, Jim said, I thought this was a serious group. Well, it's if you're part of the TBR, you know it's not. 
always a serious group. Sometimes it is. He's a new guy. I can forgive him that. But I will say this. I actually think this is a serious topic. I am taking it very seriously. I'm not even wearing a tinfoil hat right now. I think it's a serious theological question worth grappling with. My friend Wes Muburn said this. Apparently, some were aliens at one point. And then, in a tongue-in-cheek way, he cited Ephesians 2.19. Since then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Doug Hibbard used used a first Peter passage that also suggested the same thing. Yes, we are aliens, but not necessarily off-world aliens, which is what I'm talking about. Jim Pierce says that aliens represent spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, rulers and authorities, demons dressed up like aliens. And that is a very common view, that if there are so-called aliens, they're not really aliens at all, but demons. I'm not sure I see that in Scripture, but I will admit it certainly could be a possibility because the Scripture doesn't address this possibility very much. Now, Jacob Smith would fall very solidly on the anti-possible alien side. He says, I think the possibility of aliens falls apart when discussing the fall. As best as we can tell, the whole universe is subject to the natural effects of the curse. If that is true, then another rational species, which did not fall, is out there subjected to the consequences of it. Do these aliens have their own salvation history? Did they somehow simultaneously fall alongside Adam and have their own Jesus? If, in keeping with Scripture, the crucifixion of Christ is a one-time event, then another race would be subject to a punishment that they do not deserve with no possible hope for salvation. Well, Jacob, you've brought up some really good points. I don't think those questions invalidate the possibility of alien life, but it gets you thinking about it. Now, let's move over to the pro side, the it's possible side of the equation, which I guess I've tipped my hand. I lean towards that side. Brandon Ambrosino wrote an article on this question at bbc.com. The title of the article, If We Made Contact with Aliens, How Would Religions React? Well, based on what I've read so far, I would say the answer is somewhat negatively, but not universally so. And Brandon writes this, How could a believer reconcile alien contact with their faith that humans are the crowning achievement of God's creation. How could humans believe they were the apple of their creator's eye if their planet was just one of billions? The discovery of intelligent aliens could have a similar Copernican effect on human self-understanding. Of course, Copernicus told us that the earth revolved around the sun, not vice versa. Would the discovery make believers feel insignificant and, as a consequence, cause people to question their faith. Now, Ambrosino thinks not necessarily. He points out that according to the Talmud, uh, the Jewish Talmud, uh, or the Babylonian Jewish Talmud, God spends his night flying throughout 18,000 worlds. That's a lot of worlds. He says that 
he believes the concern is misguided. The claim that God is involved with and moved by humans has never required an earth-centric theology. He says and notes the, the Psalms, which are sacred to Christians and Jews, claim that God has given names to all the stars. Completely agree. I don't see how there's any problems with the possibility of alien life being incompatible with the Bible. Captain Evangelical himself, Billy Graham, said this, There are intelligent beings like us far away in space who worship God. Now, I, I don't know that I would go as far as Billy Graham, but I think it could be likely that something like that is going on. And if it is, no problem to the Bible, because as we're going to discuss in a minute, the Bible doesn't address the question. J. Warner Wallace, you might have heard of him. He's the former cold case detective who has turned into a Christian writer and apologist. Uh, good dude, good content. He had a man on his show recently called Jeff Zwierink. And Jeff, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. But Jeff is a Christian astrophysicist. And Jay Warner Wallace asked him this question. What impact does this question, whether or not there are aliens, have on the claims of Christianity and the truth of the Christian worldview? And this is what Jeff said. Many people seem to think that discovering life on another planet would mean that naturalism is correct and Christianity is wrong. One thing I found fascinating is that for centuries, Christians have thought that the implications thought about the implications of intelligent life in the universe. As I investigated the truth claims of Christianity, I realized that the existence of life of any sort beyond the confines of Earth is a great theological question without a definitive answer. At this time, I'm convinced that any hypothetical discovery of life in the universe will still point to God's creative work and ultimately help us to understand God's revelation better. I completely agree with Jeff here. Call me an alien agnostic. I don't know if they're out there, but if they're, they are, it won't disprove anything about Christianity because the Bible doesn't tell us, John 4, 17, Behold, there are no aliens. Some people do think that finding life on other planets would prove the Bible or Christianity wrong somehow. And to that I say, how and why would such a thing disprove God or the Bible? If God not made life on planet Earth, and he did, then why couldn't he make it elsewhere? To those Christians who seem to think that God would only make life on Earth, I say, why would he do that? Why would he create billions, maybe trillions of planets, most outside of our ability to see or observe, and then leave them devoid of any inhabitants? In absence of scripture or absolute proof of alien life, conjecture really proves nothing. But that cuts both ways. Merely speculating that God would not create life on other planets does not prove that it is so. The question we're grappling with today is this one. Does the Bible rule out alien life? And the answer, really the clear answer, is no. It does not. Now, if you disagree, I want to hear from you. But I want to hear from you with some scripture backing up that claim. Now, some of you might be familiar with William Lane Craig. He is a philosopher, an apologist, a podcaster, a professor, a writer, uh, one of the 
uh, really, I think, one of the most intelligent men in the world, certainly one of the most intelligent Christian people in the world. He hosts a podcast called Reasonable Faith. And, and I believe it was 2008, Dr. Craig covered this question about UFOs and aliens. And it was pointed out to him by the host of the show, Kevin Harris, that a Vatican astronomer, Catholic man, had recently come out and said, we believe that there is life on other planets and that life was created by God. And so Kevin Harris asked Dr. William Lane Craig, do you think it's possible? And this is what Dr. Craig said. And I quote, yeah, well, I think it is possible that there's alien life. One would argue that if there is life on other planets, it would have had to be created by God because on a naturalistic basis, I think we'd say that the evidence against there being intelligent extraterrestrial life anywhere in the observable universe is extremely great. The probabilities on naturalism that there is extraterrestrial intelligent life is virtually nil. So actually being a theist or a believer in God would be the best grounds for thinking that it could be possible because as a theist you think, well, God created life here on this planet. So then you could say, well, maybe God created life as well on some other planet somewhere in the universe. It is really the theist who I think a lot is a lot more open to the possibility of extraterrestrial life than the non-theist. Kevin Harris asked a follow-up question. He said, this brings up the issue of UFOs and aliens invading the Earth and all the things that are in pop culture to this day, flying saucer phenomena and things like that. Well, the Vatican astronomer has just said it could be. And then Harris goes on to ask Dr. Craig, is the Bible largely silent about the issue of UFOs, etc.? And this is Dr. Craig's response, and I think it's very significant. He says, I think the Bible is silent, Kevin. The scriptures are given to human beings as God's revelation to people on this planet. Therefore, there's no reason to think that there could not be persons that God has created in some unknown galaxy that we have no idea about. And he has provided a revelation of himself to them as well. I think it would be presumptuous to say that we know that he hasn't done that. Well said, Dr. Craig. I completely agree. Now, one more question. The host on the show, Kevin Harris, says... He says that the he the Vatican uh, astronomer says that the possibility of extraterrestrial life does not contradict our faith. In other words, if a flying saucer landed on the White House lawn today, nobody could stand up and say, "Hey, Christianity is false." Dr. Craig says that's right. That seems to be to be correct. I'm puzzled by folks who seem to think that if intelligent life were discovered somewhere else, or that if it were to come here, that somehow this would be a disproof of Christianity. That seems to be, to me, to be a complete non sequitur. It doesn't follow because Christianity simply doesn't speak to the question of whether or not God has created life elsewhere in the universe. So, if somebody tells you that there could be no aliens from a Bible or a Christian perspective, ask them to show you clear backing for such a thing from Scripture. If you believe that is the case, that the Bible rules out the, the possibility of any sort of alien intelligent life, I would ask you to send me your scripture that would back up that viewpoint. Just be sure you're not making vast leaps in logic. Let me give you an instance of a leap in logic. 
For example, the Bible says Jesus died for our sins. True. If there are aliens, then how would God redeem them? Well, that's a great question. And honestly, I have no idea what the answer is. Maybe our hypothetical aliens did not fall like Adam and Eve did. Perhaps they are redeemed by Christ's sacrifice in a way that we really don't understand. Who knows? But I do know that I can find no scripture that clearly denies the possibility of alien life or that clearly affirms the existence of alien life. I can also find no scripture, the implications of which would logically rule out either outcome. The fact of the matter is, the Bible is silent on this issue, and honestly, that's not a huge surprise and not anything that bothers me at all. Psalm 148 says this. I think it's a good time for a little scripture. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights above. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for at His command they were created. So, the stars praise the Lord. The sun and moon praise the Lord. Do their inhabitants praise the Lord? Well, I have no idea. But if they are there, I'm sure they are praising the Lord. Are there aliens? Well, honestly, I have no idea. I think the wisest and best and most biblical answer is either maybe or I don't know. To assert otherwise is borderline irresponsible. But... If there are aliens, does that pose a threat to Scripture? Absolutely not, even a little bit. And by the way, if you're listening to this podcast weeks, months, years down the line, and I don't know, alien life has just been announced, and you're shook, and you're like, oh my gosh, uh, can I still be a Christian? There's aliens. Well, yes, follow Jesus. The Word of God is true. The existence of aliens or their non-existence is not a matter that the Bible addresses. You can absolutely still be a Christian. You can't contradict what isn't there. In 1928, for instance, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, the first true antibiotic. Did that massively important discovery contradict the Bible in any way, shape, or form? Of course not, and nobody's ever thought it did, because the Bible never discussed nor addressed such a thing, that there might be antibiotics, that there might be germs that cause sickness, that there might be such a thing as bacteria or viruses. Similarly, the discussion of alien life, if it happens at all, will not at all shake any scriptural truth in the Bible, not a one. Will it shake our lives? Well, maybe so. But you can't find aliens in the scripture. Not clearly. Likewise, you can't find the United States in the scripture either. Not clearly. And that omission, in quotes, seems to rightly bother no one. It is not incumbent upon God to reveal to man all important future events in his word. Ultimately, I stand with my guy, Charles Spurgeon, and actually stood with Spurgeon before I even knew what his position was. And it took a lot of research to find this quote, but I want to uh, give it to you now. This is what Spurgeon said in a sermon in the late 1800s. 
what God has done in the eternity, which we call the past, which to him is now as the present, we do not fully know. We have no reason to believe that we know much of what God has done. There may be as many other worlds and sorts of beings existent as there are sands upon the seashore. For aught we know, and the Lord may have been occupied in ages past with 10,000 glorious plans and economies as yet unrevealed to man. We cannot tell what he does or what he has done. We are creatures of a day. We know nothing. We are like insects that are born on a leaf and die amid our fellows at the setting of the sun. But he lives on forever. We talk of the eternal hills, but they are babes that were born yesterday as far as he is concerned. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God, says the word of God. We say, roll on at ancient ocean, but the ocean is not ancient. It is a drop that fell yesterday from the tip of the creator's finger. So says Spurgeon, there may be as many worlds and sorts of beings existent as there are sands upon the seashore. And there may be, and there may not be. We don't know. And I think that's a great answer to this question. But clearly, the Bible does neither affirm nor deny the possibility of aliens. And I think you and I should remain alien agnostics until proof otherwise of something happens. So if tomorrow we see video of President Trump or President whomever shaking hands with some sort of being from another galaxy, praise the Lord, God and God created him to, God is in control. Now this is the longest uh, of the Bible Questions podcast some, so far bumping up against one hour. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I would love your feedback. Send it in to me at speakpipe.com slash BQP. That's S-P-E-A-K pipe, P-I-P-E dot com slash BQP. You can tell me I'm a moron or anything like that for believing that aliens are possible, but I will tell you I stand with Spurgeon, I stand with Lewis, I stand with William Lane Craig on the answer to that issue. And if they're morons, I guess I don't mind being a moron myself. Now, I'm going to close out with an extended reading of something C.S. Lewis wrote in the 1960s. This is going to take a while, so you may only want to listen to this if you're a fan of Lewis. But Lewis is one of the best writers ever that's ever lived, Christian or otherwise. And... This essay that I'm going to read to you from is fantastic. Uh, written in the late 1950s, so well before we put a man on the moon or anything like that. This was C.S. Lewis from a, uh, a essay called Religion and Rocketry, kind of hard to find today, that's found in a book called Christian Reflection. So thanks for listening. This is going to take me a few minutes to read. I hope it's a blessing to you. Says Lewis, in my time, I have heard two quite different arguments against my religion put forward in the name of science. When I was a youngster, people used to say that the universe was not only not friendly to life, but positively hostile to it. Life had appeared on this planet by a millionth chance, as if at one point 
there had been a breakdown of the elaborate defenses generally enforced against it. We should be rash to assume that such a leak had occurred more than once. Probably life was a purely terrestrial abnormality. We were alone in an infinite desert. Which, says Lewis, just showed the absurdity of the Christian idea that there was a creator who was interested in living creatures. But then along came Professor F.B. Hoyle, the Cambridge cosmologist, and in a fortnight or so, everyone I met seemed to have decided that the universe was probably quite well provided with inhabitable globes and with livestock to inhabit them. Which just showed equally well, says Lewis sarcastically, the absurdity of Christianity with its parochial idea that man could be important to God. This is a warning of what we may expect if we ever do discover animal life on another planet. Each new discovery, even every new theory, is held at first to have the most wide-reaching theological and philosophical consequences. It is seized by unbelievers as the basis for every new attack on Christianity. I should say, for a new attack on Christianity. It is often and more embarrassingly seized by injudicious believers as the basis for a new defense. But usually, when the popular hubbub has subsided and the novelty has been chewed over by real theologians, real scientists, and real philosophers, both sides find themselves pretty much where they were before. So it was with Copernican astronomy, with Darwinism, with biblical criticism with the new psychology. So, I cannot help expecting it will be with the discovery of life on other planets if that discovery is ever made. The supposed threat is clearly directed against the doctrine of the Incarnation, the belief that God, born of God, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was made man. Why for us men more than for others? If we find ourselves to be but one among a million races scattered through a million spheres, how can we, without absurd arrogance, believe ourselves to have been uniquely favored? I admit that the question could become formidable. In fact, it will become formidable when, if ever, we knew the answer to five other questions. Question number one, says Lewis. Are there animals anywhere except on earth? We do not know. We do not know whether we will ever shall know. Question number two. Supposing there were animals anywhere except on earth, have any of these animals what we call rational souls? By this I include not merely the faculty to abstract, abstract and calculate, but the apprehension of values, the power to mean by good something more than good for me or even good for my species. If, instead of asking, have they rational souls, you prefer to ask, are they spiritual animals? I think we shall both mean pretty much the same. If the answer to either question would be no, then of course it would not be at all strange that our species should be treated differently from theirs. There would be no sense in offering to a creature, however clever or amiable a gift which that creature was, by its nature, incapable either of desiring or of receiving. We teach our sons to read, but not our dogs. The dogs prefer bones, and of course, since we do not yet know whether there are extraterrestrial animals at all, 
we are a long way from knowing that they are rational or even spiritual. Even if we met them, we might not find it so easy to decide. It seems to be possible to suppose creatures so clever that they could talk, though they were, from the theological point of view, really only animals capable of pursuing or enjoying only natural ends. One meets humans, the machine-minded and materialistic urban type, who look as if they were just that. As Christians, we must believe the appearance to be false. Somewhere under that glib surface, there lurks, however atrophied, a human soul. But in other worlds, there might be things that really are what these seem to be. Conversely, there might be creatures genuinely spiritual, whose powers of manufacture and abstract thought were so humble that we should mistake them for mere animals. God shield them from us. If there are, this is number three, number three, if there are species and rational species other than man, are any or all of them like us fallen? This is the point non-Christians always seem to forget. They seem to think that the incarnation implies some particular merit or excellence in humanity. But of course, it implies just the reverse, a particular demerit and depravity. No creature that deserved redemption would need to be redeemed. They that are whole need not the physician. Christ died for men precisely because men are not worth dying for to make them worth it. Notice what waves of utterly unwarranted hypotheses these critics of Christianity want us to swim through. We are now supposing the fall of hypothetically rational creatures whose mere existence is hypothetical. Number four, if all of them, and surely all is a long shot, or any of them have fallen, have they been denied redemption by the incarnation and passion of Christ? For, of course, it is no very new idea that the eternal Son may, for all we know, have been incarnate in other worlds other than the earth, and so saved other races than ours. As Alice Maynall wrote in Christ in the Universe, I wouldn't go as far as doubtless myself. Perhaps of all races we only fell. We only fell. Perhaps man is the only lost sheep, the one, therefore, whom the shepherd came to seek. Or perhaps, but this brings us to the next wave of assumption, it is the biggest yet and will knock us head over heels. But I am fond of a tumble in the surf, says Lewis. Number five, if we knew, which we don't, the answers to questions one, two, and three, and further, if we knew that redemption by an incarnation and passion had been denied to creatures in need of it, is it certain that this is the only mode of redemption that is possible? Here, of course, we ask for what is not merely unknown, but unless God should reveal it, wholly unknowable. It may be that the future we were, the further we were permitted to see into his counsels, the more clearly we should understand that thus and not otherwise, by the birth at Bethlehem, the cross and Calvary, and the empty tomb, a fallen race could be rescued. There may be a necessity for this insurmountable, rooted in the very nature of God and the very nature of sin. But, says Lewis, we don't know. At any rate, I don't know. Spiritual as well as physical conditions 
might differ widely in different worlds. There might be different sorts and different degrees of fallenness. We must surely believe that the divine charity is as fertile in resource as it is in measureless, measureless in condescension. To different diseases or even to different patients sick with the same disease, the great physician may have applied different remedies. Remedies which we should probably not recognize as such if we ever heard of them. It might turn out that the redemption of other species differed from ours by working through ours. There is a hint of something like this in St. Paul, Romans 8, 19-23, when he says that the whole creation is longing and waiting to be delivered from some kind of slavery, and that the deliverance will occur only when we Christians fully enter upon our sonship to God and exercise our glorious liberty. On the conscious level, I believe that he was thinking only of our own earth, of animal and probably vegetable, life on earth being renewed or glorified at the glorification of man in Christ. But it is perhaps possible. It is not necessary to give his words a cosmic meaning. It may be that redemption, starting with us, is to work from us and through us. This would no doubt give man a pivotal position, but such a position need not imply any superiority in us or any favoritism in God. The general, deciding where to begin his attack, does not select the prettiest landscape or the most fertile field or the most attractive village. Christ was not born in a stable because a stable is in itself the most convenient or distinguished place for a maternity. Only if we had some such function would a contact between us and such unknown races be other than a calamity. If indeed we were unfallen, it would be another matter. It sets one dreaming, says Lewis, to interchange thoughts with beings whose thinking had an organic background wholly different from ours, other senses, other appetites, to be unenviously humbled by intellects possibly superior to our own, yet able for that very reason to descend to our level, to descend lovingly ourselves if we met innocent and childlike creatures who could never be as strong or as clever as we, to exchange with the inhabitants of other worlds that especially keen and rich affection which exists between unlikes. It's a glorious dream, but make mo no mistake, it is a dream. We are fallen. We know what our race does to strangers. Man destroys or enslaves every species he can. Civilized man murders, enslaves, cheats, and corrupts savage man. Even inanimate nature he turns into dust bowls and slag heaps. There are individuals who don't. But they are not the sort who are likely to be our pioneers in space. Our ambassador to new worlds will be the needy and greedy adventurer or the ruthless technical expert. They will do as their kind has always done. What that will be if they meet things weaker than themselves, the black man and the red man can tell. If they meet things stronger, they will be very properly destroyed. It is interesting to wonder how things would go if they met an unfallen race. 
At first, to be sure, they'd have a grand time jeering at it, duping and exploiting its innocence, but I doubt if our half-animal cunning would long be a match for godlike wisdom, selfless valor, and perfect unanimity. I therefore feel the pra- fear the practical, not the theoretical problems which will arise if we ever meet rational creatures which are not human. Against them we shall, if we can, commit all the crimes we have already committed against creatures certainly human, but differing from, from us in features and pigmentation, and the starry heavens will become an object to which good men can look up only with feelings of intolerable guilt, agonized pity, and burning shame. Of course, after the first debauch of exploitation, we shall make some belated attempt to do better. We shall perhaps send missionaries, but can even missionaries be trusted? Gun and gospel have been horribly combined in the past. The missionary's holy desire to save souls has not always been kept quite distinct from the arrogant desire, the busybody's itch to, as he calls it, civilize the, as he calls them, natives. Would all our missionaries recognize an unfallen race if they met it? Could they? Would they continue to press upon creatures that did not need to be saved that plan of salvation which God has appointed for man? Would they denounce as sins mere differences of behavior which the spiritual and biological history of these strange creatures fully justified and which God himself had blessed? Would they try to teach those from whom they had better learn? I do not know. What I do know is that here and now, as our only possible practical preparation for such a meeting, you and I should resolve to stand firm against all exploitation and all theological imperialism. It will not be fun. We shall be called traitors to our own species. We shall be hated of almost all men, even of some religious men. And we must not give back one single inch. We shall probably fail, but let us go down fighting for the right side. Our loyalty is not due to our species, but to God. Those who are or can become his sons are our real brothers, even if they have shells or tusks. It is spiritual, not biological kinship that counts. But let us thank God that we are still very far from travel to other worlds. I have wondered before now whether the vast astronomical distances may not be God's quarantine precautions. They prevent the spiritual infection of a fallen species from spreading. And of course, we are also very far from the supposed theological problem which contact with other rational species might raise. Such species may not exist. There is not at present a shred of empirical evidence that they do. This was 1958. There is nothing but what theologians would would call arguments from a priori probability. Arguments that begin, it is only natural to suppose, or all analogy suggests, or is it not the height of arrogance to rule out? They make very good reading. But who except a born gambler ever risks five dollars on such crowns in ordinary life? And as we have seen, the mere existence of these creatures would not raise a problem. After that, we still need to know that they are fallen. Then, that they have not been or will not be redeemed in the mode we know, and then that no other mode is possible. 
I think a Christian is sitting pretty if his faith never encounters more formidable difficulties than these conjectural phantoms. If I remember rightly, St. Augustine raised a question about the theological position of satyrs, monopods, and other semi-human creatures. He decided it could wait till we knew if there were any. So can this. But supposing, you say, supposing all these embarrassing suppositions turn out to be true, I can only record a conviction that they won't, a conviction which has for me become in the course of years irresistible. Christians and their opponents again and again expect that some new discovery will either turn matters of faith into matters of knowledge or else reduce them to patent absurdities, but it has never happened. What we believe always remains intellectually possible. It never becomes intellectually compulsive. I have an idea that when this ceases to be, so the world will be ending. We have been warned that all but conclusive evidence against Christianity, evidence that would deceive, if it were possible, the very elect, will appear with Antichrist. And after that, there will be wholly conclusive evidence on the other side but not, I fancy, till then, on either side. That was again C.S. Lewis from his brilliant 1958 essay, Religion and Rocketry. And I would encourage you, wherever you can, however you can, go find a copy of that essay. Uh, I hope you appreciate its brilliance, and I hope my reading of it did not diminish same. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing to the podcast. 